You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. You always have to learn to listen to your body. Because Christmas morning this year, I woke up, and now, as you know, I had the uh, AFib problem, so they gave me an ablation back in May, and my heart rate's been low. So Christmas Eve, I go to Feast of Seven Fishes. I eat a lot of uh, seafood, a lot of Italian sauce. It's great, but it must have raised my blood pressure because I woke up, and my heart rate was at 120. So we went to Joanne's uh, brother's house, and he's married to a nurse. She called a doctor over at Jefferson in Philly, and she said, you know, go to the cardiologist the next day. So I went, and they gave me a, a, a cardio version. They shocked it back in, and I'm okay now. But I listened to my body, and if you don't listen to your body, something bad could happen. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman. He's an actor. He's a writer. He's a director. He's a producer. He's an Oscar winner. The list goes on. And my guest is Bobby Moresco. How you doing, Bobby? Hey, Steve. How are you? I'm doing good. Now, now, how was your holidays? I know you were in New York. Did, did, you, did you have a good time? I had a great holiday. I'm back home in New York with my family. My two daughters live back here. My sister. Uh, I'm back home. It feels good. It was my first real holiday back home with the family. Now, now, you grew up in New York, and I believe you grew up in the Hell's Kitchen area? Yeah, I grew up on 51st Street and 10th Avenue, Midtown Manhattan. Everybody else called it House Kitchen. We just called it Neighborhood. Right. <laughs> now, now, what was it like back then? Because I'm sure you moving back, you know, and you've been back and forth, I'm sure, but everything's changed in New York. My brother lives on 55th and 6th, and his neighborhood has changed, and everything changes. What's the difference from when you grew up in Hell's Kitchen, well, your neighborhood, till now? Well, I, you know, I could, I could talk for about five years on the differences. Uh, the, the, the big difference is that it's no longer an Irish enclave. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, it was all Irish, one or two Germans, like my good friend Frank Schumann, and then there was one or two Italians, but not many. It was mostly all Irish, um, and everybody knew one another. I mean, uh, I, I, nobody locked their doors. Uh, nobody didn't know the neighbor, didn't know the guy walking down the street at five in the afternoon. Um, we just, in the middle of Manhattan, in the biggest city in the world, it was a small town. And it was all Irish. None of that is there now. Um, it's a multicultural neighborhood. The few people that are left in the neighborhood live in basically two buildings that are high-rises. Um, when gentrification began, uh, the Democratic Club, uh, the McManus Club, uh, worked out a great deal where when a city tore down all the old tenements where people like me and my family and my friends lived, moved into two high-rises, one on 50th and 10th and one on 54th and 11th, which is where I lived. Sort of like Manhattan Plaza. There were three of them. You know Manhattan Plaza where all the actors lived? Yeah. Yeah, same, same thing. So uh, the people that stayed in the neighborhood moved into those buildings and all of the other new places, the new tenements, are uh, just not neighborhood people. So it's, uh, it's now a multicultural neighborhood where I, it feels like there are a lot of strangers. Not like Los Angeles, you know. Los Angeles is, is an itinerant town. People go there from all over the world to get into the movie business. And now I think a lot of people come to the West Side for a lot of different reasons, but they're itinerants. They're people from someplace else as opposed to my family, which lives in Hell's Kitchen from 1890 on. So there's a big difference. Now... Growing up in that area, and you're not too far from Broadway, did that, is that one of the reasons why you got into performing? What made you take the road to being a performer? Yeah, the answer is yes and no to a certain extent. You know, everybody, when I was growing up, was either a longshoreman like my dad, or in construction, or a cop, or a crook. Those were the basic, you know, the four things. Um, I didn't want to be a cop, although I did take the police test and was offered the job and turned it down because my dad thought it was a good job and I, I sort of gave into it. But, but also, you know, the unions, the usher, the usher union and the ticket taker union on Broadway uh, were neighborhood people at the time. And so all of us kids, uh, you know, got jobs as ticket takers. So I was a ticket taker on Broadway and then an usher when I was 16 or 17. And I, I, you know, I, the, the Broadway world opened up to me in a big way. And watching it, I thought, why not that? You know, I didn't want to do the other things. I didn't want to be a cop. I didn't want to work in construction, which I did, by the way, for a long time in construction, but I didn't want it. And I chased acting. Uh, acting led me to writing, directing, and producing. Now, 
how did you get into acting? What, what, what paths did you take? Did you start doing the auditions? Did you get an agent? Did you just observe because yeah. you were working at Broadway? You know, there was a bar, a very famous bar in the theater world called Jimmy Ray's on 8th Avenue and 46th Street. And Jimmy Ray's uh, was different than most other bars in the Broadway district in that it was both a neighborhood joint and an actor's joint. Al Pacino hung out there back in the day and a thousand other actors. Uh, it was like Joe Allen's, only for the more blue-collar actor, as it were. And so when I was working, I quit school at an early age uh, for whatever reason, went back to school later. And I went to work in construction. So I'm working in construction in the daytime, I'm 17 or 18, and hanging out at Jimmy Ray's at night uh, with people like Al Pacino. Um, and there was a writer there by the name of Leonard Cantor, who was uh, a writer on The Untouchables. You remember the old television show, The Untouchables? Well, he, with Robert Stack? He, yeah, my dad always, we would uh, watch it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, um, Leonard, uh, you know, we were talking one night, I just knew him from the bar, and he said, you should be an actor. And I, like I said, I was a ticket taker also. And he, he recommended a teacher for me and made an introduction. And the luckiest thing in the world, that teacher turned out to be one of the world's great acting teachers, a guy named Wynn Hanman, who founded the, the American Place Theater. Wynn had another teacher with him by the name of Freddie Karam, also a great teacher, and they took me in. Uh, and I, I found out not only did I love it, uh, I might have had a little inclination to do it well. And that, that was the beginning of it. Somebody recommended an acting teacher who turned out to be, and it's not always the case. When an acting teacher is recommended, it's not always the case that it turns out to be a good one. In my case, it turned out to be a great one, and I got really lucky. First in a series of now, many, many lucky things. Well, that's, that, is, that is lucky because you're right. It's yeah. so funny. Living in L.A., you used to see like acting teachers, and I'm like, all they do is book a non-union on YouTube. I'm like, how can, you, how can you really teach someone to act if you're pursuing acting and you don't get anything done? Well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a dichotomy that has yet to be figured out by people smarter than you and I. But I will say this. If you love the craft of acting, writing, or directing, and you're not able to make a living at it, then teaching can be an honorable thing. The problem is there are many teachers who take that inability to make a living at it and turn it into something negative into their acting classes. That doesn't help anybody. Right. And those are, those are the teachers that you have to steer clear of. Uh, but there are also many other teachers like Wynn and, and Peggy Fury, who was another great acting teacher who I studied with in Los Angeles. Those, are, those people are heroes. They show a path to people like me who need it when I needed it. Now, as you're getting your acting class, when do you sit there and decide you want to start to get work? I mean, was it something that you wanted to work right away, or did you really want to know the craft before you went out and auditioned and, and really got your chops? Say, say that question again? When you started acting, when did you start trying to get work? Did you want to get your chops with the craft first, then go out and audition for stuff, or did you start right from the beginning? Yeah. You know, if anybody, if anybody starting out as an actress says to you, no, no, I, I knew I couldn't act, so I didn't want to audition yet. I think they're full of baloney. Every one of us wants to prove our worth from day one. And that's not smart, but that's the truth uh, from everyone I know. Having said that, I did study for about two years. Now, I never had the ability to get an audition. Didn't have an agent, didn't have a manager. But I had a brother. My brother John was a teamster at the time. Um, God bless John. He's gone now, but always did everything he could to help me. And John uh, was a teamster on a movie called Law and Disorder with Carol O'Connor and Ernest Borgnine. And John got the AD to give me a job as an extra with a wink and a nod to say that extra will then get a line in order to get a set card. <laughs> so that was my <laughs> first job. <laughs> Without an audition or anything else, it came to a teamster, my good brother. Um, and I love him and and we'll always be grateful for him for that. So I got my first day on a movie set uh, as an extra, and I got my SAG card that day. And then I continued to study, and like everybody else, I'd get a, a little line here, a line there, and again, my brother John did another thing on another movie called, uh, with Timothy Hutton, I'll remember the name, oh, Truck 182, you remember that job? I saw it, I saw it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so... Uh, my brother John, again, was a team, sir. He hooked me up with the director. The director liked me. I, I, I got about four weeks on that. Uh, and I, I learned something about the craft of acting on a movie set, not just in an acting class. And I loved it. So that's how it happened for me. And eventually I took some of that footage, and I was able to get an agent when I moved to Los Angeles. Now, 
what made you move to L.A.? And I always ask my guests, where did you first live when you moved out to L.A.? You know, I told you about growing up on the west side. Um, there was action, um, you know, with the the criminal aspect of it. Many of my good friends, my family members were involved in, uh, in organized crime on the west side, the Irish organized crime. And to a certain extent, it was, it was always involved in, in, in our lives uh, with people I loved, like my family members, friends. Um, and I, I guess I, I was around that a lot. I did a lot of drinking. I was always prone to being a gambler. I loved to gamble. And I had a daughter at the time. I was working in construction and making a lot of money um, and just pissing it away. And I knew there was something wrong, that I was never going to move to the next step of staying on the west side. I went home and I said to my wife one day, if I don't try this acting thing, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen in our lives uh, because we need to get out of here because you're killing yourself. And so she said, go out to Los Angeles, get a job, find an apartment, and me and the baby will come out. And so I did that. I, I got on a plane with a couple hundred bucks that I borrowed from my father, but I had, and I got on a plane and went to Los Angeles. Now, when you get out there, what is your first job when you get out there? Well, I, you know, I, I was nuts. you got to be young to make a move like that. When I got out of the, I got out of the plane... I'd never been to Los Angeles. I had one person I knew, my great friend Bruno Kirby. Bruno said to me, if you ever get out there, call me. Bruno and I, you know, you know Bruno Kirby, the actor? Yes. Yeah, Bruno went to school, Sacred Heart, where I went. We were friends, uh, you know, since we were kids. And so I, I, I got off the plane, I got into a cab, and I said to the cab driver, take me to a motel in Hollywood. <laughs> the cab driver dropped me, the cab driver dropped me off at the Brayer and Sunset at a little motel for about eight bucks a night with like a hundred hookers in there. And he came down and said to me, good luck, kids. <laughs> that, was my, that was my introduction to uh, Los Angeles. And I woke up the next day and I called Bruno and God bless him. Bruno picked me up in his car and he took me around. He showed me about, you know, where I need to go, what I need to do. And then uh, I went down and I, I applied for a hack license to drive a cab because the only thing I knew how to do was drive. I figured I'd get a job driving. And uh, eventually I did get a cab drive, a cab driving job, a hack driving job, and uh, uh, that led to bartending. Um, and then my, I got the job, I got the apartment, and my wife and daughter came out, and we lived out there for the next 10 years with, with me chasing acting. Now, when did you decide to get into the writing aspect of it? Well, while I was in Los Angeles, um, you know, I'd get a job here and there. I, I couldn't really support myself. I got a really good bartending job, and I, would, I opened up this theater company called The Actors Gym in 1978 because me, like so many other actors, would sit around, wait for an audition, and hope for a job and not act. And I didn't feel like I wanted to go back to school anymore. I'd studied with Peggy and thought I, you know, I'd studied enough. And so we opened up this company to start, you know, developing our own work and just keep alive. We called it the Actors Gym, 1978 or 79. I had moved out there in 76. Um, and that led me to realizing I'm either going to sit around and wait for somebody to give me a job for the rest of my life and nothing will ever happen or I'll learn how to create my own work. So I started studying writing. I started studying playwrights, screenwriting, philosophers, uh, poetry. I tried to learn as much as I could about the art of writing, the craft of writing. And then I started writing little plays and bringing them into the actor's gym uh, for actors to read. Um, and people, you know, kind of responded. And, you know, I did, I don't know, maybe 10 or 14, 10 or 15 little plays out there at the actor's gym where the members wrote and directed and performed them. I, I wrote many of them, more than most, and uh, directed many of them. That's how I started writing and directing. And eventually, I just didn't care about acting anymore. I loved writing and directing and eventually producing. And it just sort of fell by the wayside. Uh, and people liked the work. And then, while I was out there, uh, my brother, who got involved... Uh, as I said earlier, I had family members who were involved on, you know, with the action on the west side. And my brother lost his life. And I came home to deal with that. And my wife came home and we realized uh, we need to come back. Um, so in 1988, uh, my wife and two daughters, we moved back home. 
I opened up the Actors Gym here, and while here at the Actors Gym, I then wrote my first full-length play that had to do with the death of my brother and the effects of uh, having grown up on the West Side and trying to get out and become something different. And that play eventually became a movie, and I was lucky enough to direct it. Now, what was it? Now, how did you parlay into TV after that? Because you've had you had a TV career. I know you worked on Easy Streets, Millennium, and other shows. How did you get into the TV aspect of it? Living in New York. Well, you know, uh, th th listen, if there's one lesson, if there are actors out there, writers out there who want to get into the business, the one lesson that I think I learned that helped me more than anything else was that don't sit around. You know, don't, nobody, nobody can stop you from acting, writing, or directing. They can only stop you from getting paid for those things. So the question becomes, do you care about those things? Do you care about getting paid? I cared about those things. So I just wrote. I just wrote and I put up little plays. And eventually... I wrote that full-length play I spoke to you about. I was back working in construction after living in L.A., uh, and my construction foreman, believe it or not, knew that I was writing these things at night after work. And he said to me, let me read some of your stuff. He was, he was, a, he was a rough and tumble guy, a good guy. And he read the first half of this full-length play, uh, and he said, this is good, let's produce it. This guy is just never produced anything and he put up $20,000 yeah, but he liked it he liked me and he put up $20,000 to produce my first full length play it was called Half Deserted Streets my good friend Richard Compton directed it um, and my brother John introduced me to Richard so John's back in the story again and that play uh, got some really nice reviews and I went and I wrote my first screenplay based on that play and that was 1988. In 1994, oh, pardon my life. Bless you. I had moved back to L.A. Um, because uh, it was time to get back out into the world and try to get back into this life that I was missing. I'm back home in New York, but I'm not involved in anything. I've just got the active gym going in my little plays. And I started, because of that play in 1988, I started getting little jobs in the movie business. Some writer from Warner Brothers, some producer from Warner Brothers, a great guy by the name of Norman Twain, had seen the play and offered me a rewrite job for Warner Brothers. My first job ever, I'm doing a rewrite for Warner Brothers. Um, and so I did that, and then Norman got me another job, and I did that. Then I had to go out to Los Angeles to work with the great actress Lee Grant, because she was doing a movie with Norman, he got me that rewrite. So I started writing from my play. And while I was doing those little rewrite jobs. Uh, I worked with Milton Caselis as well, to Norman, who was a great acting teacher. And I just I, I just started writing and I figured, well, um, let me write my own screenplay instead of all these little rewrites for other people. And I wrote a screenplay based on my play, Half Deserted Streets. And somehow it got into the hands of Paul Haggis and his good friend Mark Harris, who was his partner at the time. And they were doing a show called Easy Streets. They read my spec script that I had written on my play and offered me a job to produce with them a show called Easy Streets, which went on to become one of the best shows in history of television, according to Time Magazine. So again, very lucky to have Paul and Mark read my screenplay, but they wouldn't have read the screenplay had I not taken the action to write it on my own. Well, you know, what's, you know what's amazing about that is also, you know, you got a job writing for TV. Now there's so many shows. Back then it was hard to get a job from TV because you probably had so many people competing for small, only a certain amount of slots. Well, uh, you're absolutely correct. Now, people say, how the hell did that happen? That's a, that's a bullshit story. Pardon my language. I'm not sure if I'm about to curse. You can. You can show. curse. You can curse all you want. <laughs> so, well, here's why it's not a bullshit story. Here's what happened. Paul and Mark, Paul called me up, said, I got your number, I'd like to meet you, I've read your screenplay, we meet, and Paul said to me, look, I've got this script for, first he said, yeah, we work in television, and I said, what the hell, hold on one second. So, I said, I never worked in television, he said, I've got this script, it's not sold yet, it's called Easy Streets, I want you to read it, and if you'd like it, I want you to work with me on it, because it had to do with the West Side, it had to do with a version I don't know if you remember the show Easy Streets, but it took place with the Irish mob. And of course, it was based on real life events in Hell's Kitchen, where I grew up in the neighborhood. So I read it, and uh, Paul said to me, It's not sold yet, but I'm going to start work on it. I don't know if it'll ever be sold, but if you want to come, come on down. So they, they opened up a little office on their own, Mark and Paul, uh, on their own dime without a sale. And I went down every morning, and I stayed until night without a paycheck. 
to work with Paul on developing the show in the hopes that it would get sold. And he and I became, you know, sort of a, a little team, him being the boss, me being the learner, but I brought what I could to it by virtue of what I knew about the world and acting, and etc. And so when it was sold, I had just worked two, three, four months uh, for no money. I put my time in because I knew this was an opportunity. And at one point, Paul said to me, uh, go home, go home, go home. I said, no, I'll go home when you go home. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? You're making yourself indispensable. And he was right. I, I studied that script. I studied the characters. I made sure that not even Paul knew more about those characters than me. And he created the show. So that's how that happens. It doesn't happen just because of the luck. You have to have both. I was lucky enough to have Paul read the script. And then I was smart enough to show up without a paycheck and learn more about the show than anybody else knew. And that's how I got my first producing job in television. Well, that's, you know, so you get that job. And what happens then when the series ends? I mean, it's your first job. It lasts for an, a series. I mean, for a season or 10 episodes, actually. It has a great cast. It says, you know, people must have liked it. What do you do now? You, you busted your ass. You worked for a time with no money. Do you sit there and go, I have to do this all over again? Or do you sit there and start sending your work out? Well, you know, um, later on, I went through, having created my own shows, a real period of like, what do I do now? Because you give your whole life blood to this thing, and now it's gone. That wasn't the case with Easy Streets. With Easy Streets, um, even though we found out we were canceled, there was still another show to do. And during that week to do another show, a week and a half, um, my agent called me um, and, and said that uh, there's a show called Millennium where they're looking for a writer and they want to meet with you. And I met with Chris Carter. He had called Paul to ask for a recommendation. That God, Paul gave me a very high recommendation. So Chris hired me right away. So I went from Easy Streets directly to Millennium. There was no downtime for that. Uh, again, lucky um, and, and opportunistic at now, the same time. Now, so you go from show to the show, and then when Millennium ends, I know you end up going on to create Falcone. Were you getting offers when you were on Millennium? Because back then, I believe, when TV writers were hot, people were throwing money at them. Is that how you ended up going well, to create? Yeah. Not only was I getting offers, I mean, I got offered... I think I was the first, you can ask David Chase about this, I could be wrong about being the first, but uh, I get another call from my agent, Chris Silverman, who's now the chairman of ICM. Chris uh, was a really good guy, and he said, listen, there's this show, they're interested in you, and, and it was uh, it was uh, The Sopranos. So I read, I, I, I read it, and it was a choice between jumping on board with this new show called The Sopranos, which of course had great possibilities, you could see it in the pilot, uh, or to try to create my own show, Falcone, because uh, well, I had a pilot offer from Les Moondas at CBS. So I chose to do Falcone, and I told my agent, I, I'm not going to do Sopranos. And the next day, David Chase actually called me personally and said, come on, come do the show. Uh, so I was smart enough, if you want to use the word smart, to turn down Sopranos twice. <laughs> How did yeah. you go about creating the show? I mean, when, when you sit there, because you have to create the show and you have to, I guess, do a series arc. How long does that take you? I mean, you know your writing craft now, but now it's a different ballgame because you've worked on shows, but now this is your, this is all you. How do you go about doing that? And how long did it take to sit there and really plan arcs out? And did any come to you during the middle of the season? take issue with the fact that you know your writing craft now. Um, we never know enough about craft. We continually learn. I knew a little bit more than I had before I did those other two shows, but you, ju you just continue to learn. The minute you start thinking that you actually know you're in trouble, we just get out there first off. So I, what happened with Falcone was my friend Lou DeGiamo, who I had known from New York, um, Lou was one of the producers on the show, Donnie Brasco. And Lou came to me in L.A. and said, I want to do Donnie Brasco 
as a television show. What do you think? Do you want to create it? And I thought it was a really good idea. And I went to my friend Jason Gedrick, who's the star of Easy Streets, and asked Jason if it interested him. And Jason said, yeah, I think it's a great idea. So me, Lou, and Jason went into uh, Les Moonves to pitch the show, and Les bought it on the spot. So at that point, because I had uh, never created a show of my own, CBS uh, suggested that I uh, work with another writer who they had worked with, because uh, it might be more helpful, and it was helpful. And together, we looked at the movie Donnie Brasco, and we extrapolated what would work not only for the opening of a television show, but what, where was the real drama inherent for five years? And so for maybe three or four months, uh, we sat down, we looked at all of that, we broke it down and said, okay, here's where we want to go, here's who the characters are, we want to create uh, real drama. And, you know, we, we decided it was a family show. So that's the big take. The answer to your question is, what's your take? In the show Falcone, the take we came up with was that it's a family show. Here's a guy stuck with the mob, that kind of family, trying to live that life and stay alive, while also trying to keep hold of his real family, wife and children. And the tension between those two worlds is what drove that show. So the big thing about creating a television show is what's the take? Who are your characters? And do you, are you going to have the legs less five years? And if not, then it's a miniseries, or a limited series, as they call it now. So you create the show, and then that ends. Now... How do you feel? Is that sort of crushing because you put your... Well, now you're really crushed. Yeah, because now it's your baby. It was a, you know, uh, once you create your own show, you really have a hard time emotionally and uh, literally going back to work for someone else on, quote-unquote, their show. Um, you just, you know, you want to keep doing what you, what you like doing, which is delving into your own work, your own past, your own histories, your own prejudices. And you try to, you know, you try to stay there. And so uh, that's what I did. I, even though I had some offers to work on other television shows, I tried to tough it out. Um, and for a little while, it was okay. And then we had a, a tough time. Um, the, the work dried up because I was trying to create my own show. Paul had a show called, uh, um, it was about marriage, uh, family law. He had a tough time over there with family law and eventually left family law. So both of us who had been making livings in television had no income anymore for TV. And Paul had an idea. He called me up one day. He said, you know, I, I have these pages for an idea which I, I think would be a good movie. I want to write it on spec. I want to know if you want to write it with me. And Paul said, here's the problem. It's a movie that nobody will probably ever want to make and nobody's ever going to pay us to write it. What do you think? I said, that sounds great. <laughs> well, so he sent me these pages that he had of these characters in the world in Los Angeles uh, that had to do with race relations. It was called Crash. And I, call, I read it and I called him the next day. I said, great, let's do this thing. And so Paul and I went and wrote this spec script for this show that we hoped, this movie that we hoped people would like and would get us out of the TV world and into the movie business. Paul had never directed anything but a little independent film. Uh, and I don't think I had to, yeah, I had directed my one movie in 2001 based on my play, so neither one of us had any real cachet in, in, film, in the film business. We had it in TV, um, but we didn't have it in the movie business. And so we wrote this spec script based on uh, Paul's idea. We sent it out there, and everybody loved it. Nobody wanted to make it. Everybody loved it. Nobody wanted to make it. Now we're stuck with a script. And they all, nobody wanted Paul to direct it either. Some people wanted to make the movie, but not with Paul directing. Probably not with me producing either. And so we turned it down. You know, Paul wanted to direct, and we wanted to produce. Um, and so what the hell are we going to do now? We don't have, we have the script that everybody loves and nobody wants to make. So we said, well, let's write another movie. <laughs> So Paul went and found the rights to this book that he saw called uh, uh, Rope Burns, about the world of boxing and a female boxer. And he called me up and said, I got this other idea. You want to write this movie with me? So I read the book and I said, yeah, let's go do it. So he and I wrote, uh, went to work on uh, Million Dollar Baby. No, he, oh, Paul had written the first draft. That's what it was. Paul had written the first draft um, probably... I was off doing something else. I forget what it was. Maybe Tanton Wolf. I don't know if I did that first. Anyway, 
Paul called me up and said, I bought the rights to this book. I've written the first draft. It's terrible. It doesn't quite work. I don't know why. Um, will you read it? And let's see if we can make this a movie that works. And it wasn't terrible, by the way. I think those were his words. Um, but there were structural problems with the movie that he had written. The, 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 the short story had five short stories about boxing. And Paul had tried to take three of them and make it into the movie. And when I read the draft, uh, it was pretty clear that he only needed two of them. Um, and the female boxer, which eventually became Million Dollar Baby, and the girl Hilary Swank played, he didn't meet her until about page 30 or 35, I don't think. And so I told Paul my ideas, you know, cut out the one story, bring up the story of the female boxer. Uh, and Paul said to me, why don't you come aboard as the producer of the movie with me, and then we can rework the script together. And I said, great. So we jumped in, we did that, and a couple of weeks later, we had a reworked script. We went back out with it, um, with me as a producer, with Paul, with Paul directing. Everybody loved the script, and nobody wanted to make it. <laughs> so, so now we have these two spec scripts that everybody loves, and nobody's <laughs> going to make it. <laughs> Uh, and we're both kind of broke. And we'll do, we're both doing little jobs, you know, rewrite jobs just to keep ourselves afloat. Um, and then we finally got one producer, Kathy Schulman, who loved the script and agreed to let Paul direct it. She brought it to this other guy who was her financier. And we went into pre-production on Crash, which was really cool. Uh, and then we got a call while we were in pre-production um, that Clint Eastwood had read the script for Million Dollar Baby and wanted to direct it. But he, and we were only starring it if he could direct it. Now, Paul was attached to direct. I was attached to produce. And we, had, we were faced with a decision, which we had always been faced with, you know, do we, do we let somebody like Clint Eastwood direct it and do we not? So we were already doing Crash. So Paul and I decided, great. So Paul backed off directing. I took co-producing A Million Dollar Baby because we were already into Crash. I was producing, he was directing. And Clint Eastwood agreed to star and direct. And he finished Million Dollar Baby before us, <laughs> which is amazing. And in 2004, Million Dollar Baby won Best Picture of the Year. We finished Crash. In 2005, we won Best Picture of the Year for Crash. So two spec scripts by Paul and I one best picture of the year back to back. Not bad, huh? That's awesome. Now, now, what was it like going to the Oscars and winning an Oscar? I mean, it's something that, you know, especially because you knew you guys were TV writers and you had your backs against the wall, so you turned this way. You Everyone liked it. No one made these movies. What's it like when you go to the Oscars and when they call your name because you put so much hard work into it? You know, it's like everybody thinks it is. It's, it's uh, you know, you hear people say it's surreal. It's surreal. You know, you don't, I don't know anybody who thinks, hey, I'm running the script and I'm going to win an Oscar. And never, ever occurred to me that that would ever happen. I'm not sure that it occurred to Paul. Um, but I don't know anyone that thinks like that. What you think is, uh, thank God, I'm writing something I'm proud of and maybe I can support my family doing it. And then you start getting all of these accolades and, and people are starting saying, hey, this is a contender for Best Picture of the Year. And you start thinking, oh, they're crazy. But you're not going to let yourself think about it. Then you start winning some of those awards, you get the Writers Guild, you know, you get the Humanities, you get, uh, you know, the other ones that we won, which was a, a, a lot. And then you start thinking, well, maybe I couldn't win an Oscar. Then you push that away because you don't want to think like that. It's crazy. <laughs> and then when you win Best Writing, Oscar for, you know, the Best Writing and Best Screenplay of the Year, even then you say, well, we won Best Screenplay, we'll never win Best Picture. Then you win Best Picture and it's crazy. It's just crazy. Um, but you know, I, I, I don't know anyone who who thinks, okay, now I'm a better writer because I won an Oscar. You think, well, thank God, I was, you know, this year people like this one better, but you don't start thinking, I wrote the best movie of the year. That's insane. You know, what it is is somebody said it was the best movie of the year, but all those other movies, they're, they're quite wonderful and could have won easily. Uh, you just, you know, you're grateful and you move on and somebody thought you, you, your work was, you know, worthwhile. Now, so you win. Now, how does that change your guys' career? Do you start getting a ton of offers again? Because you had offers before. Uh, everything, I mean, that's the big thing about, about getting an Oscar. The big thing is everything changes. Now, people are calling you instead of you calling them. And yes, for eight or ten years, uh, you know, 
you just get offers to continually work. And then after a while, people start trying to find the other Oscar winners. And then you're back, you know, doing what you, you do, which is write screenplays and try to get movies done. But yeah. for, you know, for a good amount of time, you know, you, you get constant offers and you, you do really well money-wise. Now, how did the Black Donnellys come about? Well, we had, I don't know when, um, after Falcone and before, um, I'm not quite sure when it happened, let's put it this way though. Paul called me up, Paul's always calling me up for things. Uh, Paul called me up and said, I want to do your life story, you want to do it with me? If not, I'm going to do it alone. I said, okay, great, I might as well do it with you then. And so we wrote this movie back then in 19, right after Easy Street. So it was uh, it was before I wrote and directed One-Eyed King, which is 2001. So right after Easy Street, say 1998. Uh, we got Jason Gedrick again, who was in Falcone and was in Easy Street to play the lead in uh, The Black Donnellys. We wrote it, Let's bought it. Then something happened. Jason had to drop out for scheduling reasons or whatever, and then Black Donnellys got canceled. So uh, we never made it. And then in 2006, after we won the Oscar for both those pictures, uh, we got a call from Kevin Riley, who was a friend who was running, uh, I think, NBC at the time. And he said, you know, if you guys were ever going to get big shots in the movie business, if you ever going to do a television show again, what would it be? And we said, well, you know, we always wanted to make the Black Donnellys. And he said, great, let's make it. And so we took the script. Uh, Kevin gave us a couple of thoughts. We made the characters a little bit younger, and that's how we got back into the TV business. Now, what was the transition like from going from back from TV to movies, then back to TV? Was it an easy transition, or I'm sure on TV were the days longer, or what was the transition? Well, the, the difference is with a movie, for the most part. You know, you've got a pretty good schedule. You're sitting at your desk, you know, it's just you. Maybe it's with a director. And, you know, you, you, you pound out what you think is a pretty good story. <laughs> you write it. I'm sorry that keeps happening. Um, and, you know, there, there's a certain pace with the movie. You know, you, there's no pressure. You know, you have to deliver it. And if you don't deliver it, you know, your, your studio or your network or, or, your, or your producer gives you a little bit more time. And they understand because movies are really hard. With television shows, a television show is a monster that eats scripts. There is no family life. There is no leisurely time. You are working day and night, seven days a week, especially if you're the showrunner. It's a monumental job. You're always working on the show you're doing. You're in post on the show you just did, and you're writing the show that's coming up. It's a crazy way to make a living. So... Um, the pace is just totally different. Your life turns upside down. You know, with a movie, you spend time with your family. With a TV show, you say goodbye to your family until the show's over. Now, Crash eventually became a TV series. You were involved in that. What? How is that taking a movie that you wrote the movie, it got accolades, but now you have to draw it out to a series? How does that work? Well, you know... Um, we were both working, um, Paul and I, because things got really good after the Oscars. But we got this call, you know, there's this new network called Stars that would like to make their first show based on the movie Crash. Will you guys do it? And neither Paul nor I wanted to create a television show at that point in our lives. Again, we were doing other stuff. And so they said, well, if we get a showrunner, will you guys consult the executive producers? And we said, okay. So they bought the rights to it. They interviewed showrunners and eventually found the showrunner. Uh, we turned it over to him. He said, look, this is your show. We don't care. Do, do if you love what we had and you want to take some stuff from it, great. If not, the creative show that's going to work because you got to do it. And so he did that, the showrunner, Glenn. Uh, Glenn did it. I, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on Glenn's last name. I shouldn't. He's a good guy and a good writer. I apologize for that. Um, but anyway, he created his own show, uh, and for the first year, Paul and I stayed on as consultants, and I think the second year as well. And I guess it got canceled in the third year, but we've gone by then. Now, you had this great career. Now, where do you decide to go after that? Because you guys are working all the time. Do you have any 
what did you want to do? Did you want to stay in movies? Did you want to stay in TV? What was your What was your goal? You, you know, goals are a funny thing. I don't think I've ever had one. Um, I, I, you know, the only goal that I ever had was I loved this business, whether it's plays, movies, television shows. I loved writing. I loved directing. I used to love acting. I still love actors. Uh, it was always, what's the next job? You know, what's the next job you want to tackle that's going to challenge you as a, as a writer, or director, or producer? And sometimes the next job is a play, uh, which is what I'm doing now, uh, among other things. Sometimes the next job is a TV show or a movie. Um, what's the next job is always the question, not whether it's movie, television, or plays. So for me, it was always, what's the next job? Um, and I forget what the next job was back then, but I think it was a movie I wrote and directed called Tent and Wolf with Giovanni Rabisi and Jimmy Marsden and Val Kilmer and Dennis Hopper, who I loved and uh, directed in a couple of things. So it's always it's more the next job, not know what the job is, but what's the next thing you want to tackle? Now, if you need money, what's the next thing you want to put food on the table? Right. Now, now explain, what, what, what was the 100 code? 100 code was a television show I got a call from a producer from Sweden who was a pretty high-profile guy in Sweden. I don't know where he got my name. Uh, maybe my manager, David Gallard. David asked me if I would meet with this guy, and this guy said, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, would you consider ever doing a show um, in, uh, in Sweden with Swedish and American actors? And we talked, and I love the idea of that. Um, and so eventually we came to uh, an agreement on what the show might be. I hired a couple of writers as my staff here in America, in Los Angeles at the time. And together, we they paid, they bought the ideas for the shows, they paid for the scripts, and we developed mostly, I guess, 10 out of 13 scripts here in Los Angeles. And eventually the network in Sweden uh, got enough of the scripts to give it a green light. I went over and directed the first three in Stockholm, Sweden, and then uh, left the rest of the guys out there. Came back over here and just consulted. Now, how did how did you get involved with Colin Quinn? Uh, one of my great friends. I love him like a brother. Colin Quinn. Uh, you, you know, it's he, you know if you if you notice, there's a thread going through all of these stories, which is that it's a very small business. Somebody talks to somebody else, and somebody mentions Bobby Moresco's name, and somebody says, you know, I think I want to work with him. Well, how is that guy? Or something. So Colin had heard about my company, The Actors Gym, in 1998 or 99. I always go back to By the way, I still have The Actors Gym after 40 years. Can you imagine? Isn't that great? It's awesome. Um, uh, so Colin called me up out of and said, hey, my name is Colin Quinn. Uh, somebody told me about you. Uh, are you. Would you ever consider directing a one-man show? And I said, well, let's have a chat. And I had no idea what Colin was. I found out when he showed up at my door to give me the script, um, and he, he, he left, and my children come running down the stairs and said, that was Colin Quinn. What did he want? I said, who's Colin Quinn? He said, remote control. You don't know Colin Quinn? Uh, they were, they were crazy, and they, by the way, they still are crazy about Colin. He's the, the nicest man on earth. Uh, so I read the play um, and wanted to do it. And Colin had the uh, producers from the Irish Arts. I was living in L.A. at the time. At the Irish Arts on West 52nd Street in the old neighborhood, 11th Avenue, 52nd. So we made arrangements for me to move back and direct in the 99-seat theater this play that Colin had given me based on uh, a script that he wrote with Lou, Lou uh, DiMaggio. Uh, I directed the one-man show, and by that time, Colin was on Saturday Night Live already. So it was a nice opportunistic thing uh, to happen. Um, Lorne Michaels saw the 99-seat theater production at the Irish Arts and said this belongs on Broadway but, but Lorne wanted to bring in a high profile director to go to Broadway and Colin bless his heart said I already have a director named Bobby Moresco and that's 1999 don't forget 2000 I hadn't done any Oscar movies or anything yet I maybe had one or two television shows and Lorne said well no no we need a high profile comedy director and uh, Colin said no I have a director <laughs> so eventually Lorne agreed and I directed the play on Broadway 
uh, called An Irish Wake with Colin Soaring in it, and it was one of the great experiences in my life. Uh, so Colin proved himself to be not just loyal, <clears throat> but a truly great uh, artist and friend who uh, who believes in things and continues to believe in things. So we remained friends uh, over the years and uh, tried to do lots of work together and eventually did uh, this show that, I don't know if you saw it or not, Red State, Blue State, did you see that? Yes. Yeah, uh, Colin called me up and said, I've got this idea for a new play. Jerry Seinfeld had directed a couple of one-man shows before that. Uh, and then I was back in New York, and Colin asked me if I'd come and do this other show with him. We opened it uh, last year, early in the year. People loved it. It's a wonderful show. We got picked up for a comedy special by CNN, believe it or not. <laughs> we made history. CNN never done a comedy special. Uh, they they teamed up with Netflix, and uh, I eventually shot the, the special based on the show. Colin starring and I directed, and it's out now on Netflix. If your listeners haven't seen it yet, please see it. Colin's brilliant, and it's called Red State, Blue State. It's on Netflix. Now, what is it like for you directing stage compared to film, because you've done both? Well, uh, the big difference is you spend a lot more time with your actors when you're on stage. Uh, when you're on, when you're directing a piece of film, when you're directing a piece of film, you you work on the script, you go to financiers, the financiers and, and you together collaborate to try to find the best actor for the role and the one that's going to help you sell the movie and get a good distribution deal. Uh, at that point, you start looking for actors and when you get one you have a conversation with your lead if he jumps in then you go to your next lead you don't spend any time with him you know we were lucky with crash all the leads in crash agreed to rehearse for a week or so on their own dime because we knew it was a complex script and they knew we needed rehearsals but for the most part you don't get that opportunity you meet your actors after you have your initial talks and you have some general talks about an overall look at the piece and they show up on a set and you start directing them that's a, that's a typical process, unless you're really clear on what you want to do, unless and you're on the same page with your actor. There's no time when you're directing a movie for your actor to come over and say to you, you know, this this section here, I, I don't think I want to do that. I think it's wrong. Well, you got a whole crew of 100 people waiting around for you and you have to have this discussion. You better have that discussion beforehand. And sometimes very difficult to have that discussion beforehand. Now, in theater, you sit down, you find a rehearsal space, as I'm doing right now. Um, you sit for maybe three, four days, five days, and you just go over the script and you discuss it to take. What's the play about? What are the themes? What are the conflicts? What are the events that take place in the play? And you're all on the same page. You spend time together. And then you rehearse for three weeks. Then you have previews where you can make changes. All of those things uh, are much better served in the process. And movies don't serve that as well. I tried every movie I, I direct, I try to build in rehearsal time so it's not always possible. So that's a big difference. Now, Lam tell me about Lamborghini. Lamborghini, um, Lamborghini came to me. I had written this film noir piece, uh, an independent piece that I wanted to direct. I couldn't get it done, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, and uh, I was at the Los Angeles International Film Festival run by my friend Pascal um, and we're at the party afterwards and uh, Pascal come over and said uh, I want you to meet uh, Andrea Leverino he's the head of uh, you know a big film company in Los Angeles and he wants you to write a movie for him and you, you know you get this stuff all the time um, and I said hello to Andrea and he's very sweet and very pleasant he said I want to make a movie about Lam Lamborghini and I said uh, okay great you know uh, if you uh if you're serious, you know, call my agent, make an offer, and we'll talk. He says, okay. A year later, I get a call from Andrea. Okay, I'm ready to make that bikini. <laughs> uh, that, that happens often. Okay, I'll, go, I'll call tomorrow, and then a year later you get a call, or you don't get a call a year later. But Andrea was serious, um, and I told him, well, I'll, he wanted me to write, direct, uh, write Lamborghini. There was another director at the time, Michael Radford. And I said, I'll write Lamborghini if you'll make my movie that I want to make this little noir movie called Bent. So Andrea wanted me to write the movie, so we read Bent, and he said, okay, you know, it's a nice little movie. We'll make Bent if you write Lamborghini. And we made the deal, 
and he, I wrote Bent, and he financed Lamborghini. Uh, he financed, I, I, I wrote Lamborghini, and he financed Bent. I turned in the script for Lamborghini. They went out and shot Bent in Italy for, for his company, MB Entertainment. Um, and then when I was finished, the director of Lamborghini, Michael Radford, decided to move on and not make the movie. And I had just directed Bent for Andrea. He offered me to write to direct Lamborghini. Uh, so I did. I took the job, um, went and directed the first half of the movie, which takes place with young Lamborghini in the 1940s and 50s. And uh, we had an actor who was going to play the older Lamborghini. We had some schedule changes, so we shut down to wait for the schedule for the actor. And we go back shooting now in March of this year to finish uh, shooting Lamborghini. So I'm still directing that. No, no. Uh, I, I have this play I'm directing in New York. We open March sixteenth, uh, and I go to Italy to finish Lamborghini right after that. Now, what's what's the play that's opening March sixteenth? Play that opens March sixteenth is a play called Drift. It was developed at my theater company over four or five years. Uh, the writer brought in scenes, and I worked with him as the director, and we got feedback from all the members of the company. Um, and he's a brilliant new playwright. Uh, his first play was called. His name is William Hoffman. His play, first play was done in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Got great reviews from New York Times, Ben Brantley, and others. And this is his second play, and his biggest play. Uh, and we're casting now. Um, and we open March 11th and, uh, at the World Stage Theaters off Broadway in New York. Uh, and it's called Drift. And if your listeners love great theater, please come and see Drift. Well, that's awesome, Bobby. I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. You've had quite the career. Um, Plus an Oscar, and it's just it's it's good that you still are a person that knows they they still can learn the craft because so many people sit there and it's just you know people will go oh, I know everything now, but you actually know that you keep learning as you write, and I think it's good because you keep yourself fresh with TV, from movies to plays, so it's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, you know, I'll tell you the honest truth is every day I wake up I'm amazed at what I don't know, so you just keep hustling. So, people, go check out Bobby Moresco on IMDb. Go watch his shows. Go watch his movies. Uh, follow him. Go to his play. You know, just, you got to check him out. His work's great. And he won an Oscar. As I say, it's amazing when you talk to someone who won an Oscar. That's like, everyone wants to do that. So, people, check out Bobby. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 765 episodes there. You can email me at cooper, coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter at CooperTalk and Instagram at CooperTalk1. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. And don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.